everybody! Welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop. In the last episode of 2023, in the ongoing series, Stay Tuned, where I cover stuff not technically K-Pop focused, but of course it tends to apply to the K-Pop world too, stories about the music industry and concerts more broadly. And today we have to talk about the checkered past of the internet archive, some other legal cases, AI, and more. So buckle up and get ready, lots to get to, let's dive in. Topic number one. The Internet Archive is the San Francisco-based group that archives all sorts of stuff. Basically a digital library that brought you things like the Wayback Machine. A way of preserving digital history. A record keeper of the modern age. At least that's how it bills itself. Internet Archive was founded in 1996 and is run by Brewster Kale. Yes, that's his name. Brewster, K-A-H-L-E. The board chair founder and chief executive. He also runs a foundation called the Kale Austin Foundation, which helps financially support Internet Archive's business. This foundation, I'm going to call it the KA Foundation, they get money from donors nationwide, but they are based in Washington. Kale first became rich after founding and selling two different companies, WAIS, Wide Area Information Server, and Alexa Internet. Yes, that Alexa Internet sold to Amazon in 99. Kale's business partner is George Blood. I'm not making this stuff up. Very TV show-ready names here. George Blood is a professional audio engineer, and he runs a digitizing service called GBLP. So, the Wayback Machine and similar historical preservation of the digital era is done by Internet Archive, which gets money from both donors and the Kale Austin Foundation, the KA Foundation, run by Brewster Kale, who's in business with George Blood, the audio engineer who runs GBLP. With me so far? And over the past decade, in the U.S., the company has gotten, Internet Archive has gotten, over 100 million, raised from supporters nationwide. And they have worked on something they're calling the Great 78 Project, which supposedly is reaching 300,000 visitors per month now to their site. What they are calling the Great 78 Project is basically, they dub it as a noble deed. They're going to be the people to preserve for eternity in digital forms pre-1950s recordings, particularly 78 RPM ones. So it's called a 78 Project because of the RPM, not the year. They want to crowdsource submissions for pre-1950s recordings that don't have a digital life yet, so they can digitize it for you and add it to the library. This is why they're getting sued over copyright infringement, with a suit filed back in August 2023 by Sony, Universal, and other major record labels teaming up to say, hey, stop it. And the project is not really legally sound. They can't claim it's all just a nice noble deed, because although they bill themselves as the end-all be-all way to preserve these records, that's not really true. There are other ways to access pre-1950s recordings. So the lawsuit says this isn't heroism, it's piracy. Claiming over 2,700 recording copyright violations have occurred, with a financial loss that would equal about $412 million. But people keep submitting their ideas, and the collection boasts over 400,000 records so far. And they basically don't want to stop until they have it all. Any music recorded professionally before the 50s. They want it all. That's how long the project will go, as long as it takes. The people suing the Great 78 Project and Internet Archive say their claim that these songs would become obsolete without their efforts is preposterous and that this project is unnecessary and, like I said, just piracy. 
What could come back to bite Internet Archive in court is how overt the donation and crowdfunding aspect of the record keeping has been. Like, they're not hiding it. They are overtly reiterating, yeah, please give us these pirated, copyrighted materials. Please send them to us for us to do what we want with. They loudly and proudly advertise online how big their catalog is getting. Like, good job, guys. Keep it up. This is not a secret. The estimate is that about 3 million minted sides, meaning under 3-minute recordings, were published from 1898 to the 50s on the 78 RPM discs. 3 million total, their catalog has 400k so far, so not the majority, but a significant chunk. Additionally, this group has faced legal issues with book publishers and have faced a federal lawsuit in Manhattan for this book lending program they created and have tried to appeal the verdict of because the judge ruled in the publisher's favor, not Internet Archives, but Internet Archive wants to appeal. So that lawsuit already has a legal case in print stating this company, Internet Archive, does have this history, this pattern of ignoring copyright laws under the guise of cultural restoration or preservation. Kale in particular has said quite a bit that might come back to bite him, and a lot that is explicitly cited in the suit against him, which yeah, I read all the public documents related to this. I'm a nerd, I do that. I can link to the full things on my site as always, if you want to read the fine print too, but I'll give you the takeaways. Part of the issue has to do with good faith. Like, were you violating the law without realizing, or did you very much know and not care that you were violating it? So the safe harbor requirement, as it's dubbed, that safe harbor legal life preserver would be implemented if the copyright infringer could prove there was at first a good faith effort to determine if their use of the recording was allowed. Like, if you had done your research to be like, am I allowed to use this recording? And based on that research could prove, I assumed at the end of the day, yes, maybe then the court could go easier on you. But this was the total opposite. This was in your face bragging, explicitly saying they weren't going to abide by the law. In a blog post, Kale said copyright, quote, was twisted in a rewriting of the law in 1976 to put much of the 20th century into a legal jail, unquote. He also admitted publicly in 2020, this whole process is, quote, a very heavily litigated area, unquote. In 2019, at a conference at the Association for Recorded Sound Collection, Kale presented boasting that he had been able to turn some releases into, quote, library public domain, unquote, which sounds like the opposite of what he actually did. And the conference itself was called Music Modernization Act 2018, how it did not go wrong and even went pretty right. There was big social media promo for that event too, and again, fan input has been constantly out in the open asked for. Accomplices have been recruited publicly. The GBLP group even answered questions about techniques for how to help them digitize files as part of a Q&A video upload. And they always tweet links when new recordings are up. Basically, they are posting through the piracy. The lawsuit says their account, quote, does not discuss historical facts associated with the recordings. It simply advertises that the recordings are freely available to download or stream and encourages users to go and obtain them, unquote, which is basically arguing you can't say you're doing this in the name of history if you're not actually making this material free with a history lesson to go with it. 
even big time supporters and contributors to this project have voiced their concerns on online forums. One person posting, quote, I think that a lot of people are going to assume that because these recordings are freely available in the archive, they are in the public domain. I think that archive.org ought to be concerned about this, unquote. Another user posted asking a question about what license would apply to certain recordings, and Kale responded, quote, Not a good place to ask. You could ask a lawyer, you can look at what others do, but again, we cannot offer advice, unquote. In 2018, Congress in the U.S. enacted the Music Modernization Act, the MMA, which protected copyright for songs released before mid-February 1972, a new cutoff date for copyright protection, which Internet Archive blogged about, claiming that helped legally put them in the clear, making more stuff fair use, which at best was an oversimplification, at worst a massive misreading of what the act actually did. No notice of intent to use non-commercially protected material was ever filed, essentially a permission slip for non-commercial use, again which would help support a good faith argument and help them in court. They don't have a paper trail proving they pursued in good faith legal uses of this material with the Copyright Office. Copyright infringement claims were again detailed in a letter that Senator Tom Tillis sent to Internet Archive back in the summer of 2020. Pretty soon after the senator raised a concern, a letter from America's Recording Industry Association was sent to IA, demanding an immediate cease and desist. Kale sent a response to this Recording Industry Association of America a month later, being defensive and saying he was in the right because of how, quote, obscure and rare, unquote, most of IA's material is, basically arguing, again, I have a right to break copyright law if it's in the public interest. So the pending lawsuit says the plaintiffs are owed up to 150 k in damages for every single recording that has had its copyright infringed upon and refunded legal fees. So IA could be broke after this, depending on those legal fees and how long and drawn out this situation is. Kale does not seem like the kind of guy who will just settle, but lengthy courtroom drama sometimes gets surprising people to settle just to get it over with, to stop all this public document reveals and bad media coverage. So we might settle to stop the bad PR, but I don't know about that. They seem pretty stubborn about this. In a separate, totally separate, copyright music-related legal dispute, Twitter is facing a $250 million lawsuit from the biggest music publishers alleging the app has copyright infringement issues with over 1,700 songs used on the platform. Interestingly, employees behind the scenes have reportedly pushed for years for Twitter to do this, but they've not. Yes, I still call it Twitter. Twitter is one of the few social networking sites that does not have any major music licensing agreements as of recording time, while other companies could have a deal to use certain songs on their platforms. Any song used on Twitter is not in adherence to any specific contract. Yet another court case I find interesting, Genius, the site that offers tons of song lyrics, they tried to sue Google, but that lawsuit got another nail in the coffin after the Supreme Court rejected a request to revive the lawsuit. In other words, the Genius versus Google suit kind of died and got resurrected and then rejected again recently, so basically it's done. Genius did not win against Google, not surprised. 
Sonos won a $32.5 million suit against Google, but a federal judge threw it out. Throw out that legal verdict that was against Google that would have really settled Google with a big fine, declaring it invalid and unenforceable. Now that's the short version of a very twisty, technical story. I can get more into the weeds of it on a future episode if you're interested, but that's the summary. Next topic, is it just me, or is fandom life getting extra pricey? You guessed it, it's not just me, it's very much getting pricier. Adjusted for inflation, ticket prices over the past two decades rose way higher than many other goods have, and the average face value ticket price globally in 2019, $70 for a concert ticket. Now, about $80, which adds up. There are still some very cheap resale ticket options, but also way more expensive versions too. So you could see a show for like $6, I kid you not. Kenny Chesney tickets were $6 at one point. But then again, you have tens of thousands of dollars for other shows. So the range has just grown so extreme in both ways too, possibly due to the dynamic pricing mentality of promoters now. Choosing a pricing range based on demand, which can fluctuate so much. I talked in a past episode of Stay Tuned about the whole Ticketmaster Live Nation history, their merger, the fiasco that created a history that made the Taylor Swift ticket debacle no surprise. That interesting history lesson is in a past episode of Stay Tuned. I can link to in the description if I remember, please remind me. Some interesting discussion is still ongoing. Now, technically, resale platforms, at least in the U.S., are required to provide data on reseller profits to the IRS, and any reseller making over $600 in a year will be taxed for it. Then there's the fact Live Nation in the U.S. is ending their policy of getting a cut of the merch profits at certain club shows. So it might seem that the letter of the law is changing to make sure a bigger cut of the money goes to people who are not Live Nation or Ticketmaster. Plus, Ticketmaster, SeatGeek, and other sites all agreed for the White House's push for this all-in pricing change, which would get rid of those junk fees that are added when you click go to checkout with your concert ticket purchase. So a new industry standard has been put in the fine print as needed. New, transparent, no bonus fee included experience. However, just because law lays out something, as we've talked about in this episode already, does not mean people will follow it, especially given this company history. The week of November 20th, Rolling Stone exclusively reported Live Nation was subpoenaed by a Senate subcommittee because they refused to voluntarily hand over the documents requested. So as they fine-tune legislation about junk fees and new standards for ticket transparency, Live Nation has not been forthcoming with documents that would help with that. So when you don't provide the documents they need, they can legally compel you to provide them, which is why they issued a subpoena. So I will definitely keep you posted. The story's not over. There was a GAO, Government Accountability Office, report in 2018 that found some conclusions we kind of already knew, but just confirmed them, like secondary markets, raise your ticket prices. They found that non-transferable tickets could help reduce price rising because you can't resell them, but they also limit, of course, your ability to get those tickets in the first place. The report also found pros and cons to price caps on tickets, one con being those caps are just hard to enforce logistically, and caps on tickets might just lead more underground resales to take place instead. 
They also found that stakeholders had many disagreements over the technical details that should happen and the pros and cons of them. When it comes to ticket fee disclosure issues, Summatively, they noted, quote, event ticketing is not federally regulated, and some stakeholders cite market-based approaches to address concerns about secondary market activity, unquote. So basically, let's use the market to fix the market. Meanwhile, some fans have had enough, and a Bruce Springsteen fanzine actually just discontinued over outrage of the extreme ticket pricing, the dynamic pricing that went into ticket sales. After a 43-year 43, 43 run, Backstreet's, a zine created by fans of Bruce Springsteen, ceased operations in protest. Quote, There's no denying that the new ticket price range has in and of itself become a determining factor in our outlook, certainly in terms of the experience that hardcore fans have been accustomed to for, as Springsteen noted, 49 years. Six months after the on-sales, we still face this predicament. There are concerts that we can hardly afford, that many of our readers cannot afford, and that a good portion of our readership has lost interest in as a result, unquote. Springsteen's camp responded to backlash about the dynamic pricing policy by saying, essentially, we followed industry standards, we're doing what our peers are doing, hate the game, not the player. This is no different than what XYZ artists did. We talked about the evolving concert ticket industry. Now let's talk about the changing streaming landscape. With a brief history lesson, come down to research rabbit hole with me about the past, present, and future of streaming. In the 1980s, Tom's Diner, an acapella song by Susan Vega, was experimented with to decide how to most efficiently turn audio digital. Tom's Diner was used for it. That's a fun trivia question. Researchers and a German engineer, Karl Heinz Brandenburg, worked on this technology and then started using MP3 as a term in 95. In 99, a college student, Sean Fanning, created a program for finding online versions of MP3s and the rest is history. The iTunes Store came out in 2003, Spotify in 2008, when a leader at UMG, Universal Music Group, struck a licensing deal with Daniel Ek, Spotify's founder. UMG, by the way, controls nearly a third of the world's music. So massive team-up early on, then Spotify came to the U.S. in 2011. In 2012, UMG bought EMI, so then they owned 40% of the music market, a move George Martin, Beatles producer, called, quote, the worst thing that music has ever faced, unquote. There was a post-CD sales slump in the industry, but for eight consecutive years, the music industry has kept on growing in other ways, with streaming revenue on the rise up to 2022. And it kept going up in 2022, but before that, the rise was in the tens, 20 to 40% year over year. Streaming revenue is up now, an average of 5%. So the trend is still up, but waning. There's an interesting competition in the world of streaming between UMG and Warner Music because both are juggernauts, both are publicly traded companies, both share investors, and both want to fight to hold on to this roller coaster of streaming momentum before it crashes. UMG has publicly proposed what they say is a plan that will make sure more profit goes to human artists, not fakers, but that plan will also mean UMG will get to pocket more money. 
because the devil's in the details. It's being dubbed a new artist-centric approach to cut bots out of the equation, make sure profit goes to true artists. But despite some doubts about the practicality of this artist-centric idea, UMG stock has gotten a boost from it, with JP Morgan claiming the new plan could raise subscription revenue 9%. Furthermore, if indeed some dystopian AI future fully flooded the zone with bot songs, UMG's anti-bot proposal, as it's being framed, is predicted to raise the revenue of streaming over 20%. Spotify has not enthusiastically responded to the proposal, but UMG and Spotify do seem to be still kind of on okay terms, and UMG did make sure, as part of an agreement with Spotify, Spotify's participation in their proposals, like this artist-centric one, is mandatory. Meanwhile, Apple and Amazon Music are further away from solidifying new deals with UMG. So no one is really super, super clearly eager to jump on this proposal. A big issue with today's streaming is that every song is treated equally. So a white noise song or a 30-second snippet counts the same as a song with much more meaning or context or authenticity behind it. A knockoff can equal the same amount of streams in financial value as the opposite. So for people who just want a quick buck, it's a bad incentive. JP Morgan conducted a study and found if you uploaded a 30-second track to Spotify and programmed your phone to listen to it on repeat 24 hours a day, your monthly royalty check would be $1,200. Not bad for 30 seconds. We could but won't spend a whole extra hour talking about how this feature has actually been used for money laundering among criminal gangs in Sweden, but let's move on. France is trying something else out with Deezer, which globally only reps like 1-2% to of the music market. Deezer is not a big streamer compared to like Spotify, but it's pretty big in France, so it's a good trial run location. So there, Deezer will try to divert more royalties to artists, consciously changing what proportion of profits from a song will go to real artists versus others. They're also trying a threshold that you have to have a thousand streams a month to count as an official artist and get payouts. Now, that doesn't totally get rid of scammers, but you have to have more dedication to the scam to earn that many streams a month and get a paycheck for it. An interesting takeaway I got from looking at all the latest news in the world of streaming is the fact the big companies and the artists are often not on the same team, but in some ways they are. Like in this case, it benefits both the company and the artists if they crack down on so-called white noise podcasts and bots and artificial trash material. They both don't like revenue being eaten into by bad actors. Bloomberg actually investigated and found that Spotify has been actively trying to suppress the popularity of these white noise podcasts out of fear that they're taking away the revenue. Quote, once Spotify realized how much attention was going to white noise podcasts, the company considered removing these shows from the talk feed and prohibiting future uploads while redirecting the audience towards comparable programming that was more economical, unquote. JP Morgan also recently had a study, a link to all these studies on my site by the way, showing that an estimated 10% of streams could be deemed fake from like a streaming farm, not an actual just genuine person naturally going about their day. 
Spotify has actually started phasing out of Uruguay. Officially will January 1st, but they already announced the plane is in motion to shut down by the end of February 2024 in Uruguay. A Spotify spokesperson said, quote, without clarity on the changes to music copyright laws, Spotify will unfortunately begin to phase out its service to the detriment of artists and fans. Spotify already pays nearly 70% of every dollar it generates from music to the record labels and publishers that own the rights. Any additional payments would make our business untenable. We are proud to be the largest revenue driver, having contributed more than $40 billion to date. And because of streaming, the music industry in Uruguay has grown 20% in 2022 alone. Changes that could force Spotify to pay twice for the same music would make our business of connecting artists and fans unsustainable and regrettably leaves us no choice but to stop being available, unquote. This is in response to Uruguay law changes to music copyright. Article 285 aims to put into fine print the, quote, right to a fair and equitable remuneration, unquote. So they're worried that there's a lack of clarity. What does this fair and equitable new requirement mean? What costs will we have to pay up versus the artist? And Spotify seems to essentially be saying, if you can't confirm and say rest assured, you guys will not be footing the extra bill that's on someone else, then we just won't even take the risk. We're leaving. This is not new, though, and back in July, Spotify sent a letter to Uruguay's Minister of Education and Culture, arguing, hey, you could double the amount we have to pay you. That's not fair. Don't put this law into effect. But back in October 2023, it was put into effect. Spotify had threatened, hey, again, if you make this change happen, we will pull out of the country. But the bill passed anyway, so they did. It's time to move on to the next topic, but I have done way more reading about this, but I will just summarize it here and link to the full reporting on my site as part of my newsletter. A new report from Public Knowledge called Streaming in the Dark looks at structural problems in the music industry when it comes to data and payouts. There are also issues with the live audio clubhouse-esque platforms that have tried to stay relevant. Spotify shut down Hurdle, the Wordle spinoff they bought, and canceled some live audio programs. Apple's live audio app, Amp, shut down. Short-lived experiments. There was a Berkeley study in 2015 called Transparency and Money Flows. The issue is not a lack of awareness or research. The issue is a lack of will to meet artists fully halfway, which is kind of kicked down the road further the chance of full artist company harmony with the excitement companies have in not artists over some AI usage. So maybe they both share the interest in getting rid of bots, but in AI overall, not on the same page. And actually, Paul Vogel, the CFO of Spotify, has really hyped up the new DJ feature. He said it's been rolled out in over 50 countries already and has been, quote, really well received, unquote, so far. By who? I don't know. No one cited. And he called it one of their most successful endeavors to date. Meanwhile, Spotify comrade in the past, UMG, signed a deal with Endel, an AI company, that claims it's not going to make its own version of white noise music, but will just be a partner to work with AI-enhancing artists' work. One more major topic before moving on to a lightning round. Harry Styles fans are losing it over possible leaks. Not only are they really wrecking their brains trying to figure out if these leaks are legit, but legit in another sense. Like, not just, yep, they're from Harry, but they're from a human. Or are they AI-generated leaks? 
And some people are making bank on these leaks. Two desperate fans. One offer was for two Harry Styles leaks in exchange for $400. Some people are trying to, I guess, maybe feel better about their purchases by going down internet rabbit holes to try to find a kernel of proof, any kernel of proof, that these are legit demos. Looking up copyright database names and seeing if there's a web connecting one name to another to another that eventually gets back to Harry. It's causing some Discord user conflict and also some heated back and forth. Are you a real fan? Maybe not because you're not willing to pay X amount for that leak like I am or you're not believing it's a leak, but I know it's authentic and you don't. It's quite heated. And the people who say I'm the one who found the leak claim they're really risking even their own safety and security by leaking this private info like they're a whistleblower and you should respect them more. There are several habits they have gotten into to try to decipher if it's really AI or not. One is detecting and keeping track of copyright takedowns. So if a leak on social media is taken down from the social media site on copyright grounds, they assume that means, oh, it was legit. Not necessarily, because those sites take down AI-generated stuff all the time, too. Also, just for fear of some sort of copyright infringement in some form. AI can easily infringe on copyright. They're not going to take time to decipher truly when it is and when it isn't. Surely the automatic takedown function doesn't differentiate. If there's any risk of copyright issues, they're just going to take it down. They're also trying to look into those copyright databases, but if someone did manufacture this stuff or use AI or both, they probably saw that coming. They probably thought, if you're passionate enough about this to pony up hundreds of dollars, you're also probably passionate enough where I won't assume you wouldn't go searching for keywords. So they might have thrown some red herrings out there, just keywords to mess with people. And if you're like, but Hope, why would anyone care? Why would anyone mess with people? To that I say, you sweet summer child, you've clearly not spent tons of time on the internet. It is bonkers what people will put all their time and energy into doing just to see reactions. So truly, if they're fake leaks, which I have no idea, I wouldn't put it past people online to do that just to see what happens, to mess with people. 404 Media reported on this story and had AI experts listen to some of these leaks. The experts pointed out many details they said imply they're authentic, that these demos are not AI, but they hesitated to make that a very definitive conclusion. Just more likely than not, they have the hallmarks of human demos, or at least not the typical AI ones. So the jury's out. Couple of things I want to say about this story. One is that I don't judge the superfans for their reaction, their desperation to get a leak. Now, the leakers themselves who are illegally spreading this stuff, shame on them. But the desperate fans ponying up money for those leaks, I don't want to be too critical of them because there's already plenty of coverage of fandoms that portray them as just stupid or ridiculous or hysterical. And I don't want to feed too much into that stereotype. As you know, if you listen to my other show, Enthusiasts, I spend a ton of time defending fandoms and that profound level of passion celebrities can bring out of us. That it's not the negative force in the world it's automatically assumed to be. So I like to take fan side until I'm shown otherwise. 
So I don't like anything about this story. The way it speaks to AI, messing with people, the questionable motives of the leakers, the way this money is being spent. Don't agree with any of it, but I would refrain from making this just a story of another crazed fandom. Because although the AI element is quite new, this has been a thing in other ways too the past few years. Not even just with music fandoms, but movies, games, super fandoms have ponied up lots of money to get leaks of material or to otherwise get exclusive access to some sort of hidden thing. Getting coveted, private-seeming information, the desire to get that is just human nature. It's also, of course, not specifically Styles fans to focus on either. I mean, back in May, this scammer made thousands on alleged Frank Ocean leaks, but that turned out to, in fact, be AI. The person who is leaking for 3 to 4k a pop has been banned from that specific Discord. Concerning but kind of fascinating what people decide different leaks are worth financially. In worth in terms of taking advantage of time, passion, effort. I say one of the morals of the story is just enjoy the music that was legally, legitimately released that the artist is very happy with and glad you're enjoying. Because song leaks are like if someone, instead of reading what you wrote in an essay for school, said, nah, I'm just going to read your diary entry instead. Like, what you plan to show the world versus keep scrapped away for yourself. Let's respect artist's choice about that. Now, when an artist is blocked from providing material and someone leaks it to help them, maybe that's another story, but not going there today. Again, in the not infinite amount of time you have on this earth, please spend and just listening to and enjoying legal options, if possible. All right, let's move on. There are so many other stories to get to, so I'm just going to cover a ton really quickly. If there's any story I go through and you do want more detail, we could talk about it more on a future episode. Just let me know, message me on socials or in the comment box if you're listening on Spotify. It should be directly where you're listening. So we could revisit these in the future, but I've taken up enough of your time already. So let's just go through a quick overview. The company Five Gum launched a unique collaboration with JID, the Five in a Lifetime campaign to celebrate hip hop's 50th anniversary. The song has references throughout it to five of the most iconic hip-hop albums in history. And the song is only available to five winners that each get it on a physical boombox. The five winners will get a boombox that self-destructs after a fifth play. So a song about five iconic albums given to five people on a cassette that self-destructs after five plays. Five Gum will also make a special analog boombox donation, as well as a 20k donation, to the Hip Hop Museum set to open in 2025. Bad Bunny found a very creative way to promote his new album. Get student journalists to do his PR for him. So the University of Puerto Rico had their students put together a special edition of their newspaper, with Bad Bunny as the cover star. They worked in overtime to make this happen. They prepared a listening party. Lots of calls and meetings were exchanged. What an incredible assignment. The Grammys have added three new categories and many technical changes to Grammy qualifications. One stating, quote, only human creators are eligible to be submitted, unquote. But it sounds like there's a technical loophole, because while that sounds like they're banning AI creators in Grammy consideration, if AI works with humans, that seems permissible. 
quote, a work that contains no human authorship is not eligible, unquote. Some people see AI as here, so if it's here to stay, let's just use it for good. So Grimes is doing something kind of cool, actually, by just totally freeing people's usage of her voice, voluntarily saying, you have the right to use my voice to make AI songs. Send me this info. We'll make sure you get the right royalties. All good with me. 50% of royalties given to that creator, 50% to Grimes. You can actually go to elf.tech to try it out. She's really making it a collaborative, beneficial endeavor. A trend I hope continues, concert movies winning the box office, which continued to be the case with Taylor Swift and Beyonce. And I wouldn't be surprised if in 2024, more artists realize they can get some big, at least free PR by having a concert movie that really gets people to go to the theaters. South Korean broadband company and Netflix have finally settled a drawn-out legal battle over usage fees. Long story short, Netflix had kept refusing to pick up the tab for network fees when network usage rose, notably in South Korea. Then they actually filed their own suit, hoping to get a court to vouch for their argument that Netflix itself didn't have to pay the usage fees. A sole court ruled in South Korea's favor in 2021, but then Netflix appealed. The appeal was what was so drawn out. But now they kind of shook hands, I guess. They've teamed up to work together on tech resource sharing, new streaming options, and more. But others say the truce they have now, their olive branch moment, might have just been exhaustion from such a drawn-out ongoing legal dispute that they just were like, we're throwing money at an impasse. Not worth this fight anymore for either of us. But expect the convo to be still revisited about who pays network fees since South Korean politicians have made this so-called free-riding trend a focus of their bills. Over 100 artists joined a boycott against any concert venue that uses facial recognition tech, viewed as way too untrustworthy and biased. TikTok continues to be dominant and recently started a multi-year licensing deal with Warner Music. They also tried out an American Idol-style show through the app. They launched a feature that lets you not have to leave the app and save songs directly to your Spotify or Apple Music library there. For the first time since 2012, there was going to be a return of the bamboozle fest that got canceled at the last minute due to apparent permit paperwork issues. I would love to know how many times in history big historic moments were canceled for little technicalities like that paperwork or something, if that really was the reason. Between 2019 and 2021, South Korean YouTubers' revenue rose tenfold, so expect that trend to not go anywhere. A survey of U.S. vinyl purchasers over the course of a year found that 50% of them don't own a record player. They just like the throwback merch. Music revenue continues to soar and reached $8.4 billion in 2023. Now, how much that streaming revenue is distributed among people, that's another story. But big picture, very lucrative right now. Epic Games sold off Bandcamp, so Bandcamp's workforce was halfway laid off, and Sontrader bought the company, bought Bandcamp. Lastly, 
Billboard was going to do a Hot Trending Songs powered by X chart for X, aka Twitter, to be a hub for new music, figuring out what's hot and trending on social media, music-wise. But that didn't really become a norm because they put it on pause, they said, at the end of September due to the volatility of that platform lately. Much more, I'm sure. If there's a story you want me to cover more, or at all, that I missed, always feel free to message me. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I look forward to more of Stay Tuned next year, so indeed, stay tuned, and I will talk to you all again very soon. Bye, everybody!